tiny in all that air. The Philip Larkin Society Podcast. Hello and welcome to Tiny and Ilda Air, the Philip Larkin Society podcast. My name is Lynn Lockwood. So we're now in 2022 and this is going to be a really exciting year for the Philip Larkin Society as we prepare to celebrate what would have been Larkin's 100th birthday on the 9th of August. We're hoping to get as many people as possible involved all across the UK and around the world. Writers, artists, dancers, librarians, fellow literary societies, and of course, podcast listeners. It's going to be action-packed, so keep an eye on our Twitter accounts and Instagram, listen out to the podcast, read the member newsletters, have a look at our lovely refreshed website, and there'll be lots of announcements in the months to come. My guest today is Dr. James Underwood from the University of Huddersfield, whose amazing research has recently been published under the title of Early Larkin. He joins us to guide us through the early years and explains why reading Larkin's poems, stories and letters written even when Larkin was still at school can give us so much fresh and fascinating insights into the writer himself. So, yeah, do you, want, do you want to start off then just uh, letting us know how you first discovered Larkin, really? How did you get into Larkin? Sure, yeah. Well, I think, I think there's, probably, there's probably two questions there, isn't there? How, how do you, did I sort of get into Larkin in the first place? And then how did I get into Larkin <laughs> academically? Yeah, um, that's true. Yeah, yeah. In terms of how did I get into Larkin? Um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm from Hull. I was, I was born in Hull, oh, right. grew up in Hull. Um, and I think if you're from, if you're from somewhere like Hull, um, you don't, you grow up there and you don't, you don't think of it as a poetic place. Right. Um, but if you're, if you're kind of, you know, a bookish child, which, which I was, um, to then find out that there was this great poet who, who lived there, but who also wrote about the place and, and in a sense kind of made it poetic, you know, mm. um, brought it into major canonical 20th century poetry, then that's, it's quite a big deal really. And it, it makes you, it makes you see the place again. And it, it, I think it makes you appreciate the place a lot more as well. So it was, it was that kind of personal, that personal link that, that kind of, made me notice Larkin in the first place and made me made me want to read his stuff and find out more about him. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Like people from Hull, although Larkin might have a bit of a ambiguous relationship with Hull sometimes, you, you know, especially when he first went there, uh, people from Hull seem very keen to to talk about, you know, that Larkin was from there and everybody's got like a, oh, I, I think I might have seen Philip Larkin or, um, oh, my, my dad did some decorating at the university or, you know, people seem to enjoy trying to find a link to Larkin and it's as if he's got a link to everybody in Hull because, and he has in a way, hasn't he? It's, it's amazing. I can't think of any other poet or writer that does that to people. Yeah. And 
but it is a, it is a big deal. It, it yeah. is a big deal. And I, once you get into Larkin, you then you then learn that actually there are all these other fantastic poets who are also from Hull or who moved to Hull or who spent time in Hull and that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, people like Douglas Dunn. Yeah. Um, and then and then you learn all about that. But I think often Larkin is is the kind of gateway to all of that. Yeah. You have, to, you have to find Larkin because until you find Larkin, you just don't think it's a poetic place. You don't you don't think it's a significant place in, in that in mm. that sense. Mm. So um, I think it doesn't it doesn't surprise me that people from Hull are keen to make a big thing of that because mm. um, I think what what Larkin can do for a place and what he can do for a, a a person's appreciation of place is, is really significant. Yeah, yeah. So did you first read Larkin when you were at school? Can you remember getting your, uh, your first, you know, your first edition of Larkin poems or anything like that? So we, ne- we, never, we never studied Larkin at school, interestingly, I suppose, um, given that we were, we were in the area. Mm. Um, but I, you know, I, I, was just, I was just curious. So I, I bought the, the, the green, uh, you know, the 2003 collected poems, um, which which I still got and which I, I still primarily use and, mm. and just got into Larkin that way. Um, and then it was really it was really when I was at university that I sort of got into Larkin academically. Yeah. Um, I did I did my undergraduate dissertation on Larkin. Yeah. Um, and I think um, if there's if there's if there's one thing that kind of underpins all of the work that I've done on Larkin from you know my very kind of amateurish undergraduate dissertation to to the to the book that I've published. Um, it's it's this this feeling that there are so many misconceptions about Larkin, yeah, um, and 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 wanting to kind of have my say about those things and, yeah. and wanting to sort of do something about those misconceptions. I think one uh, one of the misconceptions is that Larkin's poetry is really easy and straightforward and it's it's self-evident what all of these poems are about and 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 what they mean um i think a lot of a lot of critics say that a lot of a lot of the scholarship on larkin to be honest really says that which yeah yeah i find i find i find that quite frustrating and i i'm not sure we're really doing larkin much of a service by 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 saying that i think Mm. i think larkin larkin's poetry is is complex and and there's a there's a huge amount of hidden depth there. I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to overstate the point. Mm. I think um, you can you can read a Larkin poem and get an awful lot out of it on on a first reading, and that mm. and that is a that is a big reason behind his popularity. I think, and and that's a good thing. But there's an awful lot of complexity and, and hidden depth, and it was quite frustrating to read all of this criticism that says, "Well, isn't it? Isn't it obvious? Isn't it just obvious what this poem mm. is saying? Isn't it just mm. obvious what this this poem is about?" Um, I mean, think about think about a poem like Living's, you know, that, mm. that three-part poem mm. Um, mm. he wrote. That is such a strange, enigmatic poem. and it's, That's the poem with the lighthouse keeper. Lighthouse keeper. Yeah, and very there's strange. A, there's, a, there's a kind of, there's a, um, an Oxford Don in mm. one of the poems and mm. there's, a, there's a kind of, the other, what, the other one's about an agricultural salesman. That's right, yeah. It? Um, yeah. It's such, a, such an odd poem, such an yeah. enigmatic poem. How... How do the three poems fit together? Mm. Um, it's so historically textured. Um, you know that that is that is far from an obvious poem. Um, so I think 
that that underpins my sort of academic interest in Larkin is sort of mm. getting really into the work and, and the hidden depths of it and the complexity and the literariness as, as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and there's so much. There's 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 so much there. And 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 if I think if you listen to a lot of people, you would think, no, there there's there's not much there, but there really is. Yeah, that that's really interesting. So I know um you're sort of talking about the complexity in terms of sort of meaning and resonance and illusion. And I, and I really like what uh, James Booth does in terms of, for me, I learned a lot reading James about uh, meter and structure in Larkin, because that's incredibly complex as well. And um, the only other writer that I felt taught me as much about meter and form is Robert Frost. And Robert Frost, again, on the surface looks simple um you know uh, and he's very popular because of that and very sort of simple imagery of uh, you know the, the pastoral imagery but when you when you get into Robert Frost it's very philosophical and also very complex as well and um you know I think there's some really interesting links between Larkin and Frost because of that yeah I think I think there's I think there's a lot in that actually isn't isn't I might have got this wrong, but isn't Robert Frost one of the books Larkin said that he sort of had within easy reach of his of his death? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you can you can really see you can really see the similarities as as you say, it, it's there's this surface layer of a, a kind of easygoing, you know, kind of persona talking to you mm. um, in both poets, but you, you get underneath that and it's incredibly complex, as you say formally as much as anything else yeah uh, and yeah. they both make it look so easy don't they they make, yeah. they make it look so easy the writing of poems the crafting of poems but actually what both of those poets are doing is so difficult it's that it's so incredibly well crafted yeah and I, re- yeah. I really appreciate that aspect of, of Larkin and, and poets like Frost as well yeah so why do you think then Larkin uh, we have talked about this before in the podcast but why do you think Larkin is just not as widely taught as some writing, not even as widely taught as Frost, you know. Um, it can't, it's, you know, I know there's the issue around sort of personality and, and you know, the kind of uh, maybe some of the ideas expressed in some of his letters and things like that. We know that kind of controversial side. But, I mean, in terms of the, you think by certainly by the time you got to university level, that wouldn't have been an issue. So why do you think at university he is so sort of, marginalized well in terms of the teaching of Larkin I'm not I'm not I'm not convinced he is marginalized I think okay. it seems to be a perennial of the secondary school curriculum and mm. university English departments um where he does seem to be marginalized is more in terms of the research happening okay yeah yeah well. um and I don't know maybe is it is, is there a link between the two things? Is there a link between the sense that the poetry is all very straightforward and, you know, a couple of readings and you've sort of exhausted yeah. the poem? And, you know, um, I guess I guess if that's your perception, then you might be quite put off writing a, a dissertation or, mm. or a book mm. about Larkin. I, I don't know, but um, he, seem, he seems to be taught quite widely. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and it, it certainly seems to be a favourite of English teachers. Um, and, you know, every English teacher I've, probably most that I've worked with over the years, 
have got a few larkin poems that they will always try and get onto the you know into the classroom at some point uh for all kinds of reasons uh and yeah there's no question about his place in the canon um but yeah that's interesting that perhaps we don't uh get enough people wanting to actually research but I mean, I, I've seen some, obviously now as part of the Larkin Society, I, we're becoming a, what I'd like to think of as a bit more of a hub for research and for people, you know, like yourselves and Alex Howard, you know, that we're getting to know you all and, and getting to find out more about what research is going on out there and Clarissa as well. Uh, so, you know, hopefully that all continue to develop. And obviously you, we've got our publications advisory board so you're, I don't know if you wanted to talk a little bit about that and, and where you see the future of uh, Larkin Research and how it's linked to that. Sure, yeah. Well, um, as, as, as you, you know very well, the, the Larkin Society has just been incredibly busy, hasn't it, in recent years, mm. and incredibly active and really kind of diversifying the work that it does and, and, and its offer. Um, and I know that you've been you've been keen as a society to, uh, to kind of use this, use this moment to take stock of, of what you're doing in terms of publications. Mm. Um, and so, so for that reason, um, I was asked to, to come on board as, as founding chair of the, the publications advisory board. So um, a, a kind of subcommittee, if you like, which, which will advise the, um, the exec committee on uh, everything it's doing in the realm of, of, of publication. So looking at what it's doing currently and thinking about how that might be developed, um, expanded. Also looking, looking at other things society might do. So in, in, the, in the longer run, um, could the society be publishing books on mm, Larkin? Mm. You know, whether, whether those are academic books or, or trade books, coffee table books, you know, mm, whatever it might mm. be. That sort of thing, and I think I think it's 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 partly what you say, isn't it? It's about creating creating more of a home for any research, any scholarly mm. activity on Larkin mm. that that is going on, uh, and not just kind of creating a home for it, but hopefully actually then stimulating more, generating more of it. I think I think that is a really important function that the society could could uh, kind of go on to serve now is is generating a lot more academic activity. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think um, there's, there's so many more opportunities now that the world of publishing has completely transformed in the last sort of generation that we can look at things like e-publications and, um, you know, different kind of models for, for getting things out there. Uh, and I think, you know, just, just the podcast um, technology in the last few years where it's it's so straightforward and, uh, you know, it's it's really kind of brought a different type of um, way of exploring Larkin, for example, and and just uh, yeah, get, getting things out there really, and and making connections between people. But I think it's really fantastic if we we may be going down the path of having a you know an, an academic journal and having a, a as well as our our society journal um, and how that might develop. Uh, actual books would be fantastic um you know and, and kind of connected to that a little bit we're we're very uh subtly relaunching our website at the moment and uh trying to make the website 
a, a much more dynamic kind of centre for publications of all kinds as well. You know, um, I think it, with the excitement of social media, websites got a little bit uh, neglected over the last few years. But actually, I think we've we've taken another look at the website and thought, no, this could actually be a really good uh, place to go to for information and for links and for research, hopefully, and, and make it a really good uh, resource for people as well. So, yeah, you've come along at a good time. I think there's a lot of ambition in the society at the moment. Yeah, I, th- I think I think the society is in an, in a really strong place. Actually, you look at some literary societies and and whether whether this is by design or or by accident they're very very scholarly and that's Mm, and that's mm. really the only kind of thing that they do um whereas i think i think the larkin society is it's doing all sorts of things and it's 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 reaching all all sorts of people so that that is a really really strong base to build on um and as i say hopefully hopefully provide that kind of that kind of home for anybody with a, a scholarly interest in in Larkin and, and and generate some more some more work on Larkin. Definitely, yeah. And also anyone that wants to buy a Larkin tea towel <laughs> or yeah. wants to come and see us in the park and do some Larkin colouring in. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's I, I guess it's um in a way uh, we're a bit like Philip Larkin, aren't we? We've got kind of different uh, ways of communicating and and just kind of being out there in the world you know um and yeah we've got some we are all volunteers but I think we've got a really it's always been an amazing group of people you know I mean the people have changed and people have stepped down but when you look back even you know if you read James Booth's um history of the Philip Larkin Society that he put in the um journal uh it it has just had amazing people running the society right from the start and, you know, amazing um, HVPs. Uh, it just seems to, uh, yeah, be a, a really kind of fascinating group of people that come along to the Larkin Society. So obviously that's no reflection on other literary societies. So I don't really know who run the other literary societies, but I do feel like really honoured to be part of this this team of people and I really love the um the social media how we've managed to pull in lots more people so I just feel like we're a really big team now that's all around the world and we're always welcoming new people along and people that want to contribute in different ways and get involved and I think there's lots of ways to do that now uh thanks to uh social media and thanks to kind of technological things and hopefully now uh in the new year well we're in the new year, but later in the year and into next year, we can start going back to more physical events, you know, and we've got all of what's going to go on in the summer for the centenary. And, and hopefully that will be on the ground in Hull and across the country. And uh, we can all start seeing each other in person again. And, and that will just, I think that'll be the ideal place where we can all be. So, um, so you, you were, uh, I've got you to come along primarily um to talk about um, early larking um, and uh, it's an area that we have covered on um, the podcast before um, to some extent uh, we've talked to James Booth about um, Brunette Coleman and we talked to David Quantic as well uh, and uh, we've um, obviously covered a little bit about his life and his letters and his relationships but I think, you know, what you've done in your book has has taken 
um, Larkin as from his, you know, teenage life up and it ends at the less deceived, doesn't it? And really um, shed some light on how this is an integral part of his development of, of a, as a writer, rather than just the kind of damp squibs or full starts that kind of narrative that people sometimes, people sometimes say, oh, well, yeah, Jill's not a bad novel, but, you know, he was never going to be whatever. Um, and I think you've, you've wanted to challenge a lot of those kind of assumptions about early Larkin. So I wondered if you wanted to just kind of uh, introduce us a little bit to where you were going with the book and, and how you got started with it. Yeah, sure. Um, by the time you get to the less deceived, there is this, there's this kind of relatively stable, coherent, poetic voice, isn't there? And, yeah. And the collections that follow on from that. I, I don't want to overstate that point because as I was saying earlier, um, I think there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of kind of diversity in terms of the voices and the personae that Larkin's mature poetry makes use of, mm. but there is, there is, you know, there is this relatively coherent poetic voice that, that you might call the Larkin-esque. Yeah. When you, if you work backwards from the less deceived, then there's just so much going on in mm. terms of Larkin's writing. Um, most obviously he's, he's writing in all sorts of different forms. So he's not just writing poetry, but he's writing novels, short fiction, essays um you know at times he's even writing plays and verse dramas mm, and things mm, like that so mm. there's an awful lot going on in terms of different literary forms but also literary different genres um he's really kind of playing around with different personae um different authorial identities and i think one one of the things i wanted to do with this book was to try to sort of read that all together so not not just look at these things in a in a very bitty way but sort of pull them together um and and to see whether we can say that there is some kind of literary development mm. arising from all of this all of this different work so not it's not it's not his kind of personal development that i'm i'm interested in mm. here. it's not mm. kind of psychological or, or biographical it's 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 his literary mm. development can we pull all of these seemingly quite random different things that he's doing together and, mm. and, and sort of trace some kind of development. And I think, I think we can really. And that, and that's, that's really what, what the book is all about. Um, I think when you look at early Larkin, there's, he's, he's kind of got two problems, right? Um, one of his problems is he is really obsessed with his literary influences mm. Um, and he tries to copy them and, and that means he's not original. So that's, that's one of his problems. The other problem is he seems in his early writings to be really preoccupied with himself. Yeah. But the problem there is that, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not knocking anybody here, but if you, if you're sort of a middle-class kid that's gone from grammar school to Oxford university and you're sort of 19, 20, 21, you know, your experiences are probably not enough to be the kind of stuff of great literature, yeah, right? Yeah. So that that's his other problem. He's sort of obsessed with writing about himself and his his private experience uh, or experiences, but it's just not really kind of generating 
much for him. So th- those are his two issues. And then what happens um, kind of round about 1943 is he starts experimenting with different authorial identities. So this is, um, this is coming towards the end of his university, or is he just as he's graduating from Oxford? Yeah, well, even before that, really. Mm. So he's um, as he's kind of working towards his his final exams, you know, yeah, should, he, yeah. should he head down. Um, <laughs> That's an ideal um, time to work, though, isn't it? The last thing you want to do is study. I'll just go and sit and do some writing instead. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, Brunette Coleman is is sort of like the ultimate exam procrastination, isn't it? Yeah. Really? <laughs> Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's round, round about that time, final year, final year at university, preparing for final exams. Um, and it's 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 even before we get it's before we we see the brunette Coleman stuff. Actually, mm. um, there's there's a story he writes um, called an incident in the English camp. Yeah. Um, and he includes he includes his name in the title, so he calls he calls it an incident in the English camp. By I think he calls it a thoroughly unhealthy story by <laughs> E. A. Larkin, mm. and that's kind of interesting because that that wasn't really the way that he put his name to his, mm. his work. Mm. He was Philip Larkin, right? So, sort of including himself in the title, but but sort of slightly changing his name mm. to me just suggests he's, there's just that little bit of distance between you know the actual Larkin and the the kind of the the, the author. Yeah. Story. So already, this is this is the point. Already, he's he's sort of um, taking one step back from himself. Yeah, and, and did you make the point that uh, there's also a gender ambiguity of that once you just use an initial that it yes. could have been uh, Pamela Larkin rather than Philip Larkin? Exactly, because the 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 protagonist of the story is is a young a young woman um, yeah. called Pamela. Yeah. So it, it at least raises the possibility, doesn't it, that yeah, yeah, the author yeah. of this story is is a Pamela Larkin rather than a, <laughs> a Philip Larkin. Um, so you can you can already see the seeds of the Brunette Coleman project there. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I think this story this story is so interesting. I, it's not it's not great literature. You know, I'm not I'm not trying to make that kind of claim for a lot of these a lot of these writings, but it's so interesting because what he does is he sort of takes all of the conventions and the sort of expectations of that period's romantic fiction, you know, so kind of, you know, women falling in love with good, clean living officer class soldiers, you know, that sort of thing. And he, he sort of inhabits that genre of romantic fiction, but then completely turns it on its head. Mm. Uh, Cause towards the end of the story, the, the, the protagonist, Pamela, um, has this kind of fantasy in her head where she um, she rescues um, Robbie, her, her her sweetheart, who's who's a uh, who's a soldier serving in in the war, and she she sort of rescues him in the Libyan desert, but she's dressed mm. as a man. Mm. So there's also that sort of gender bending um, content in the story as well as possibly yeah. in in the title and in, in the author author. Um, so he sort of turns the genre on its head. Um, and the reason why I think that's so interesting is because he's not doing, he's not making the same mistakes that he's been making in his writing up till that point. He's not, uh, just imitating Mm. his influences, first of all, uh, and he, and he's not obsessing over 
himself and yeah his, yeah he's really sort of taken a step out of his world and and written a different one um yeah. and that that's kind of that that's the that's the story if you like that's that's what i try to argue in the book is is that once larkin takes that decision to um kind of come out of himself um to 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 inhabit other people's lives mm. perspectives worlds stories um that sets him on track and it is quite a long and and sort of winding journey that he has yeah. to go on but it sort of sets him on on course for the the great poems that you know we all we all know and and yeah. read and love and th- and that kind of opens up that possibility that we should always bear in mind that even the great poems aren't necessarily Larkin's voice, you know, even the famous poems like Wits and Weddings or Dockery and Son, you know, the ones that we totally believe are Larkin toads, for example. There's all the personas behind that as well. We're not just sitting behind Larkin's eyes for the rest of his poetry. Exactly, exactly. So when you then do get to The Less Deceived and The Wits and Weddings and High Windows... Yes, there's, as I was saying, there's something Larkin-esque about those poems, those collections, but it's exactly as you say, those collections are full of personae and role-playing and messing around with voices Mm. and genres and conventions and expectations and things like that. Mm. Um, And what, what, what I'm trying to argue is you can trace that, that all the way back to early Larkin. Yeah, um, yeah. So in that sense, there isn't this great big chasm between early Larkin and later Larkin, which I think is is a narrative that's been put forward an awful lot. Yeah. yeah. Uh, actually, that chasm gets a lot smaller when you, when you realise that what Larkin was kind of messing around with in his work in the 1940s really does sort of pave the way for those really, really great poems of the 1950s onwards Mm, um and i also think i mean look different people will have different ideas about what exactly it is that makes larkin such a great poet for me i think one of the things that makes larkin so great is that interest in other people Mm. um that he doesn't just obsess over himself and his his private experience but he really tries to get into the heads of other people so think about you mentioned the wits and weddings that's a really good example um afternoons yeah yeah. That's a good example. Even even the mower. I mean, that that is a poem about a hedgehog, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's yeah. not about people really. It, it's, yeah. it's about a hedgehog, but it's still such a sort of empathetic poem that tries to make connections with others and otherness. And, yeah. and, yeah. and that's that's one of the things I really appreciate about Larkin. But it's it's his early work where he really started doing that. Yeah, and there's a lot in his early work that is of really good well, you know, I don't want to kind of make value judgments, but there is a lot of stuff in there that's really good as well. Uh, I mean, the, uh, you know, the trouble at Willow Gables, it's not it's not going to be to everyone's taste, you know, because of the no. genre. Um, but, you know, things like the essay, what are we writing for, is it's brilliant. The Sugar and Spice poems, uh, you know, there's some amazing writing there. Uh, 
So it's not even, I mean, the Jim Sutton letters that we're going to come on to, there's some amazing writing in the Jim Sutton letters. So it's not even a case of this is just him, you know, developing and, and being an apprentice. He's the right of apprenticeship, but there's, there's absolute brilliance in there already right from the beginning. There's plenty of humour and, and experimentation and fun and, and uh, you know, empathy and creativity and language is lots to be found in these early writing. Uh, so again, you know, just to say, oh, don't worry about it. Maybe have a reader, Jill and a girl in winter and then just get on to Celeste Seed. I think you're actually missing out on quite a lot of fascinating, larking reading. So I'm, I'm always pleased if people have a go at going back to the, the early larking and, and having a read of it, because they may well be surprised at how much they actually enjoy it. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And um, you know, if you look at the the poems he wrote as Brunette Coleman, so under the under the title of Sugar and Spice, mm. I mean some some of those poems are really bad, but when I say they're bad, I mean that they're sort of bad in a really deliberate, knowing way. And, yeah. and there's you know that there's something really sort of funny about that. Um some of the poems are quite Extraordinary, yeah, actually. yeah. Um, particularly, um, Fama Damne, yeah. Um, There's the sort of the, the the version of Baudelaire that he he writes. You know, he writes that in 1943 as Brunette Coleman, yeah. But then, decades, literally decades later, in the 1970s, he publishes that poem mm. under his own name as 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 Philip Larkin, mm. and as far as I can tell. Nobody, nobody particularly batted an eyelid, right? No, nobody sort of read that poem and thought, "Hold on a minute, this is this is nothing like the Philip Larkin that I know." Yeah. Um, so it's 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 really interesting, isn't it, to think that that poem he wrote in 1943 as Brunette Coleman, actually he can publish it in the 1970s under his own name, and it just sort of gets folded into his his body of work. Yeah. Um, because yeah. it's such a Larkin-esque poem, isn't it? It's so it's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Well Dave, David Quantic read it and and talked about it. And uh yeah, I, I just think it's a it's a stunning poem. And there's so many images in it that um that are so Larkin-esque, you know, when he talks about the sort of plots of cabbages and the Green Line bus and all that kind of domestic setting uh around this very uh you know this quite ambiguous kind of traumatic relationship between these two women that's being played out in front of it all. And um, yeah, it, it really is amazing. I mean, when, um, when I was talking to James Booth about this and he was reading, uh, you know, the, the school in August, uh, it, it's, it actually made it very moving. It's actually something, you know, very, uh, again, quite empathetic about it, even though it's about schoolgirls, um, he brings something to it, Larkin, that you, that, you wouldn't expect. It, it's, it, it really takes you by surprise, I think, because you, if you read those poems sort of in order, so in, in the sort of order of the, the manuscript in yeah. the archive, um, you know, you, you start off reading, you know, like a, a poem about a schoolgirl sort of hurriedly cycling to WH Smith to get this book on horses that she she really wants. You know, it's it's, yeah. it's such a silly poem, deliberately yeah. silly yeah. poem, and quite it, it's sort of cute, but it's sort of facile. You know, yeah. 
Um, and then you sort of work your way through the poems and then you get to those those poems you've mentioned and you know the school in August for example and as you say it is they're really poignant poems yeah you're not you're not ready for that no because you think you're just getting silly facile poems and then it really takes you by surprise Mm. um and and as as you say you know those all that imagery of housing estates and buses and the milk on the doorstep Mm we're sort of properly into afternoons territory there. Yeah. And weddings or here or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, But he's doing that in 1943. Yeah. Not in in 1953. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's definitely um, worth people going back to. It's only only about seven poems, I think, isn't it, in Sugar and Spice? Yeah. Um, And then uh, very different from the poems of the North Ship, you know, the North Ship, uh, is very influenced by other writers, as, as you said before. Um, but when you see, when you hear Larkin's voice in the Sugar and Spice poems, that's yeah, that's the Larkin-esque voice. It's already there, already developing. Um, so, did you want to talk about the uh, Jim, some of the Jim Sutton letters? Do you feel that would be a good time to do that now? Yeah, the, that correspondence is 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 one of the things I write about in the book. There's a whole, there's a whole chapter dedicated to yeah. the, the letters with, with Jim Sutton because it is a really extraordinary correspondence. And yeah. um, you know, one, of the, one of the points I would make is some of, some of Larkin's best writing of the 1940s is in, is in those letters. Mm. Uh, they are kind of extraordinary literary documents as well as, you know, just sort of biographical documents. Um, and, and, and that's, that's what I was really interested in. Um, and particularly the way in which Larkin is using that correspondence to really sort of construct this artistic identity for himself. So, um, Jim, Jim Sutton at that time was, um, uh, he was an aspiring artist. Um, mm. he, he, you know, he, he just started at art school before, um, being conscripted um, into, into the army for, uh, during the Second World War. Um, so you've got Larkin, the, well, at that time, aspiring novelist, and you've got Jim Sutton, the aspiring painter. And, and Larkin sort of really uses this correspondence to, uh, to, as I say, to construct this artistic identity for himself. And so you get this really, really extraordinary writing um, that I think, I think, Larkin's letters to Sutton, they're, they're real kind of journeys. You sort of, mm. sort of meander all over the place in these letters because you get, you get lots of sort of social history and these little details about what's kind of going on, whether that's in the news or in the house or, mm. or whatever mm. it might be that day. But then also you get these sort of pyans to, um, to the sort of writers that Larkin was worshipping at the time, mm. writers like D.H. Lawrence, uh, Catherine Mansfield and then you get these really extraordinary um, passages about art mm. and about what it is to be an artist and and that sort of thing um, shall I shall I read one, yeah. of, the, one of the letters um, I'll read this one is this one's from the 16th of August 1945 so it's 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 written the day after um, J- Japan's surrender, uh, so it, it brings together, bring bring the brings to an end the the Second World War, 
Um, so he, he says, my dear Jim, well, the war ended yesterday. We have come through, which six years ago, I thought unlikely. God knows what fate we have been reserved for, but that one fact is good enough for the moment. Congratulations to you on your survival. Now I hope you'll be able to get back home and do what you want to do for a change. And then, and then it's sort of typical Larkin, you get these really prosaic details about um, how he's been to Devonshire for his birthday and he's had two baths um, and it's really cold. Um, and then he sort of complains about work. Um, and then he says two fireworks go bang outside. So you get that, you just get that little insight into people celebrating mm. and what's sort of going on out on the streets and that sort of thing. And then, and then you sort of get this, this change of tone. He says, yes, I look forward to our meeting again. I do really. What it'll be like, I don't know. But I feel at the moment that all my friends have proved too limited. I have people whom it is a pleasure to drink with or write to. But I want someone who is really with me right down to the root. It's hard to explain. I have friends who are kind, witty and even sensitive. But I need someone who consciously accepts mystery at the bottom of things a person who devotes themselves to listening for this mystery, an artist, the kind of artist who is perpetually kneeling in his heart, who gives no fuck for anything except this mystery, and for that gives every fuck there is. Is this you? I believe it is. You see, we should be so lonely if we can't give each other faith. Alone, I am beginning to faint and fall. Together, we shall be no more successful materially, if I am ever famous, it will not be for ages, probably till I am dead, because I will not push myself. But we shall do better work. We shall become more faithful artists. So I think that that passage is, it's sort of one of those really extraordinary passages that I was talking about mm. in amongst the sort of grumbling about work and the weather and having baths and, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. You just get this really intense, quite intimate as well, I think, passage um, about what what it is to be a true artist and and how you have to kind of attend to that and yeah and how Jim Jim Sutton is the only person who really understands that and um, yeah so it's a really extraordinary letter it, yeah they are they are so beautifully written and I know Maeve Brennan in um, the Philip Larkin on you goes back to the Jim Sutton letters as her kind of defence of Larkin as somebody who was sensitive and who was you know, thoughtful and, you know, full of kind of uh, empathy for the world. Um, and I think it's it's this kind of passage, isn't it, that she quotes as, as showing him at his best. And again, before she knew him and as a very young man, um, he's barely lived a life at this point. Um, it's, it's an interesting balance and an interesting how he doesn't, show that much interest in World War II, does he, in his letters? It seems to be a bit of a nuisance, really, and a bit of, he's a bit sniffy about everything that happens. <laughs> yeah, he is, yeah. Def definitely don't read the letters if if that's your kind of interest. You know, <laughs> yeah. what, what was it like to live through the Second World War, that kind of thing? Um, you know, he sort of mentions it, but it, it always feels a bit like something that's just on the periphery. Yeah, um, and, yeah. And just, it's, just, it's just annoying more than anything. Yeah. It's just getting in the way of sort of doing the things that he wants to be doing. And, and a lot of his mates are, of course, are actually sort of serving in the war. Yeah. So their life is really on hold as well. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an irritation alongside, you know, cold weather and 
you know, people who talk too much and things yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he, he was forced into quite a, an unusual relationship with World War II, I suppose, being left at university, whereas most of his friends were called up and he he didn't have the fitness to be able to do that. Um, and Oxford at that time would have been quite an unusual place anyway, wouldn't it? Because there would have been a lot more, they had a lot more female students there, because obviously Monica was there, although he didn't know her at that point. Um, and it, it must have felt a very strange place to be um, with a lot of his friends knowing they could get called up at any minute uh, and very disruptive kind of life to live. And obviously having to rush home, he had to rush home at one point, didn't he, to Coventry to, to find out if his parents were still alive. But even that kind of, it gets resolved quite quickly. His parents were still alive. <laughs> he had a bit of a torturous journey getting there. And um, I don't know how you live this kind of through this world without suffering terrible trauma but he seemed to cope with it by regarding it all as a bit of a nuisance um and just getting on with it really yeah i mean there's there's even just you know a little revealing detail in in jill where where john kemp goes to one of his lectures and the lecture theater just it just it's it's all women it's all, all women. women yeah yeah because uh, that yeah that it must have been what it what it was like it must have been quite odd yeah yeah and I know sometimes that can be used as a bit of a stick to beat Larkin with uh, when people try and look for you know the misogyny in Larkin which I, I would argue is quite hard to find really mm. um but obviously he was living in a world where the role of women was was changing very dramatically at that point uh, and it must have just been uh, I, I can't imagine what it must have been like to to live at at that time as a young man with with artistic ambitions um so yeah so do you want to explain a little bit about what happened with the relationship with Jim um and the, the future of the friendship between Jim and, and Philip Larkin and what impact that had on him yeah it's 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 a little bit sad in a way um I mean the what happens is the the, the correspondence becomes really very intense and particularly over the course of the war and they're, and they're, you know, they're corresponding from a distance, obviously, because Sutton is actually serving abroad. Um, so it is this very intense correspondence and that, that passage I've just read kind of gives you, it gives you a flavor of that. Um, by the time you get to the sort of late forties, early 1950s, it really, it really starts to peter out uh, the correspondence. Um, they, they write to each other much, much less frequently and, it, it's it's really not as intense or intimate. Mm. It's, it's much more polite and just kind of doing your duty of eventually replying to the letter. Um, and I think I think really that's because Larkin's Larkin's writing, his literary career, is taking off. Mm. Um, Jim Sutton's artistic career, his, his career as a painter, never never did take off. Um, mm. He I think he ended up becoming uh, a pharmacist and, and a landlord, um, you know, not, not that kind of, that kind of great artist, that great mm. painter of the future that Larkin was really setting him up as in the correspondence. So mm. I think in a, in a sense, they just, they almost run out of things to say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it, 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 it peters out. And uh, Larkin's correspondence uh, with other other writers like Kingsley Amos became 
well, that's a whole other book, isn't it? <laughs> Larkin's, yeah. uh, Larkin in his correspondence. Uh, and, there, and again, another place where he plays multiple roles and, um, you know, the, the, the persona that he takes on with Kingsley Amos is very different from the persona that he has for his mother and for Monica and for, you know, Barbara Pym. Um, and it's fascinating that he, he continues to do that through all his letters. Well, yeah, I mean, with a lot of these correspondences, remember, he's he's writing them at roughly the same time. So at the same time that he's writing those really extraordinary letters to Jim Sutton, as you say, he's writing these really, really coarse, crude letters to Kingsley Amis. And I suppose, you know, the, well, the, the question is, what do you do with that, right? What mm. do you what do you do with the fact that Larkin seems to be all things to to all people? Um, as you said, Maeve Brennan, she uses the Sutton letters as as a, as a defence. You know, mm. um, this is the this is the Larkin that I knew. You know, this is this is almost you know this is the real Larkin. Yeah. Um, I'm not so sure about how successfully you can sort of pick out a Larkin and say this is the yeah. real yeah. Larkin. I think. For me, given everything I've said, what he's doing in letters is really just an extension of what he's doing in, in his literary work. He's, yeah. he's playing around with voices. He's playing yeah. around with persona. He's trying outfits on and he's seeing what it's like to be this person and then that person mm. um, because mm. that's what writers do. I see a girl dragged by the wrists across a dazzling field of snow, and there is nothing in me that resists. Once it would not be so. Once I should choke with powerless jealousies. But now I seem devoid of subtlety, as simple as the things I see, being no more, no less, than two weak eyes. There is snow everywhere, snow in one blinding light, even snow smudged in her hair, as she laughs and struggles and pretends to fight. And still I have no regret, nothing so wild, nothing so glad as she raised up in me and would not, though I watched an hour yet. So I walk on. Perhaps what I desired, that long and sickly hope, someday to be as she is, gave a flicker and expired. For the first time, I'm content to see what poor mortar and bricks I have to build with knowing that I can never in 70 years be more a man than now, a sack of meal upon two sticks. So I walk on, and yet the first bricks laid, else how should two old ragged men clearing the drifts with shovels and a spade bring up my mind to fever pitch again? How should they sweep the girl clean from my heart with no more done than to stand coughing in the sun than stoop and shovel snow onto a cart? The beauty dries my throat. Now they express all that's content to wear a worn-out coat, all actions done in patient hopelessness, all that ignores the silences of death, thinking no further than the hand can hold, all that grows old, yet works on uselessly with shortened breath. Damn all explanatory rhymes, to be that girl, but that's impossible. For me the tasks to learn the many times when I must stoop, and throw a shovelful 
I must repeat until I live the fact that everything's remade with shovel and spade, that each dull day and each despairing act builds up the crags from which the spirit leaps, the beast most innocent that is so fabulous it never sleeps. If I can keep against all argument such image of a snow-white unicorn, then as I pray, it may for sanctuary descend at last to me and put into my hand its golden horn. You know, if you didn't know this was by Philip Larkin, you, you wouldn't know it was by Philip Larkin. It's a really strange poem. It, it's, <laughs> it's exactly what I was talking about earlier. It's yeah. so enig enigmatic, so mysterious. Um, it's not really like a lot of the other poems in the North Ship either. Um, I think what, what I say in, in the book is that it's kind of got, it's got Brunette Coleman's finger prints all over yeah. it. Um, there, there's, there's, there's kind of like a handful of poems in the North Ship where you can really tell that he's sort of written this, you know, around the same time as or, or, sh or shortly after the Brunette Coleman experiment. And I think, I think this, is, this is the most obvious one because, of course, you've got, you've got that initial image of, of a girl being kind of playfully dragged through the snow um, and and this this kind of fascination with her and what what it must be like to be her. Mm. Um, I, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't think I don't think it's a sexual interest. Mm. I, th I think it's just a genuine, genuine fascination with what it must be like to be this this other person. It's it's such a strange kind of aspect of the poem um but but that fascination with you know the opposite sex i mean that you know it's there in the brunette coleman works um and then i think it's also there in in some of the mature poems mm. uh, like wedding wind for example mm, mm. which you know he's, he, he literally writes from the perspective of a newly married woman yeah um but i think you know there's sort of something else going on in, in this in this poem because um, David Timms, who's one, one of the critics who's who's written about this poem, he says that the poem is in dialogue with three of Yeats's poems, particularly uh, "Sailing to Byzantium." Mm. Um, and in that in that poem, in in "Sailing to Byzantium," you've got a sort of old man, you know, coming to the end of his his life and sort of looking forward to eternity. And eternity yeah. is sort of golden and you know, perfect, and it's this kind of mythical place. Um, in this poem, in Larkin's poem, um, well, he, what does he describe himself as? He calls himself um, a sack of meal upon, upon two sticks, yeah. uh, which is a really unflattering description of himself um, and, and sort of makes himself sound like the old man of Yeats's poem, but he's not an old man, he's a, he's a young man. Um, he says he's got 70 years ahead of him. And of course, we know that Larkin was a very young man when he wrote this poem. Yeah. Um, so Paul, it's yeah, not what poor about... mortar and bricks I have to build with. It's like yeah. he's, he's got no potential. He just sees yeah. nothing in himself that, that can grow almost. And the weak eyes, which, um, which were the reason Larkin didn't, you know, wasn't able to be conscripted. Yeah. So it's, it's not an old man approaching death and the afterlife it's it's a young man feeling very sort of dissatisfied with 
is lots. Um, and what you get in the poem is you get this kind of co uh, contrast or tension between the kind of ethereal beauty of the girl and her sort of happiness and the, the snow and, you know, all, all of that imagery. And then um, the more sort of real world workaday imagery of the two old ragged men mm. clearing the snow away with their, with their shovels and spade. Um, and, and they're right at the centre of the poem, aren't they? They're physically the kind of yeah. pivot of the poem, which is really interesting. Yeah, um, they are. And, and it's, I, I'm pretty sure it, it's about them that he says, the beauty dries my throat. So it's not, it's not the girl that provokes that reaction. It's the two old men shoveling mm. snow in mm. their sort of ragged coats. Um, and so to, to me, it's, 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 it's a muse poem. It's, 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 it's kind of debating sort of which direction the poetry is going to go mm. in. You know, is it going to go down that the kind of Yeatsian route of golden artifice and eternity and, you know, or is it going to sort of stick here in the real world, in, mm. in the actual world? Um, and right at the end of the, the poem, you get, you get that image of the, the snow white unicorn and it's, it's golden horn. And of course that's, that's, it's a really traditional poetic image that isn't mm. it? It's very mythical. Mm. You can, you know, it's, 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 it's Yeatsian. Yeah. Um, and that might suggest that, that, okay, he's, he's decided, right. That that's the road he's going to go down. But what he does is he kind of spoils the image, if you like, or he vulgarizes the image by making it sexual because mm. the unicorn puts its horn in, into his hand um, so he vulgarizes it and that sort of suggests that no I'm not I'm not going to go down that kind of Yeatsian road I, I am going to sort of I don't know I'm, I'm going to keep all of these things in play you know mm, um, mm. The, the, the kind of golden eternity but also the here and now the real world the, the, the sort of gritty reality of, of the world I live yeah. in and sort of keep all of these things in play in my poetry it's a real poem of um sort of opposites and dichotomies, isn't it? Even that first line, I see a girl dragged by the wrist. It takes him quite a long time before he tells us she's actually laughing and yeah. pretending to fight, as you do when you're in the snow. A lot of what you do when you play is about laughing and pretending and slipping and falling and all that kind of stuff. But if you, I think people sort of see the violence in this first. You see the violence in this first before you see the sort of joy or the kind of, um, you know, freedom in the poem, the, the playfulness. And it's clearly, it's, it must, there must be a sort of deliberate effect there that he's taking you down one path all the time in this poem and then takes you down a different path, as, as you say. You know, you think the poem is about the girl, but actually it's about the old men. Um, yeah, example. yeah. But then, but then, but then, he sort of goes back to the girl, doesn't he? And he yeah, says, there yeah. are more explanatory rhymes to be that girl, but that's yeah. impossible. Yeah. So, it, it, yeah, it's, it, it is, it's such a strange poem. It's such a strange opening to the poem. Uh, I still don't really feel like I completely understand this poem. No, no. Um, it, it's, it's just so enigmatic. Um, but um, it does, it does, he does seem to be having this kind of debate in the poem, but he's, he's sort of having a debate about poetry, but it's also through the lens of gender, isn't it? It's the, 
it's the yeah. contrast between the youthful girl and the and the 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 old man and you know um it's yeah it's 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 really interesting it's to me it's just so clearly a sort of post brunette coleman era poem mm. I like that line everything's remade with shovel and spade you know the the uh, it's a poem about work or or commitment mm. and repetition um because that yeah. was something Again, it comes up in Larkin's poetry, you know, Larkin Toads. He, he often states a kind of amb- ambiguous relationship about work and commitment. And yet he was the person of, of everyone who worked hard and showed immense commitment to friends and partners and his mother and the library and everything else. So there was always that he was very vocal about that or kind of explored that in himself a lot, didn't he? That he had those mixed feelings about about it sometimes he thinks I want to I want to throw everything up and stuff your pension and then other times he's just there and he needs to be there every day he needs the shovel and the spade that's that's what gives him that's what makes him who he is that's what you know yeah yeah so it's it's a work poem as well isn't it yeah yeah it's anticipating toads and toads revisited but I think you know round about this time he's also he's learning that the job of being a writer is really hard. Like yeah. it's going to be hard, you know, to get where he wants to be. Um, there is no shortcut. You can't just write like Yates and then everybody will think you're just as great as yeah. Yeats. Yeah. You, you have yeah. to sort of pick up your shovel and get to it. And Get on it, yeah. Each yeah. dull day and each despairing act builds up the crags from which the spirit leaps. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you certainly could argue this is a, a poem about work and and creativity and inspiration. It's not all about, yeah, like you say, trying to just waking up in a Yeatsian mood. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. about actually putting in the in the the spade work during the day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's just so so mysterious. Yeah, and and as we were saying before, uh, we're about uh, the reason why uh, the artist Nick Cave and his, um, the singer and artist Nick Cave and his his wife, Susie Cave, uh, were blogging about this poem because I think they like the imagery of the snow and the, and the kind of, uh, the, the strange sort of dreamlike imagery and the unicorn and everything. I mean, one of his albums has actually got a unicorn, I think, on the front cover. So you can also read this poem on that level as well, can't you? Just sort of astonishingly gothic, dreamlike imagery um which when you think if you're in the same breath you're talking about it being a poem of work and you're also talking about a gothic poem about unicorns it's it's pretty amazing really um yeah it is it is but i suppose it's like um you know you know dublin-esque yeah where that's it's sort of both about kind of the gritty reality of you know prostitutes in, yeah. in in Dublin, but it's also this really sort of dreamlike, otherworldly poem, um, or the the Winter Palace. I mean, I know that that poem was sort of cancelled, um, you know, for editorial reasons. But yeah. it's a real shame because it's it's such a beautiful poem, and and it, it, it's again, it's it's snow, isn't it? It's the imagery of snow, and yeah. that sort of represents almost like oblivion, like and just another another world so there are sort of continuities it's a great poem to read actually and 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 in the light of what you've done in early arcing 
you can see a lot of strands being pulled together in this poem, which is really interesting. Exactly. And again, it means that early Larkin, whether, you know, whether you're talking about the North ship or his novels or whatever it might be, early Larkin is not really this false start. Mm. Yes, it does. It does appear to be very, very different in so many ways, his early work, but it isn't a false start. It, it is just laying the groundwork for what's to come, but yeah. he's just doing it in such a sort of strange way with yeah. all of these experiments that it can be hard to see that, I think. Yeah, yeah. And I think anybody that that uh, wants to do a bit of a di- deeper dive into Larkin, if they've, if they've very become probably quite familiar with the main collections, uh, I'm sure they'll get a lot out of going into early Larkin. Um, and obviously reading your book as well because it will take them through it. <laughs> well, hopefully. It's a huge amount of research you've done there. Because actually, he wrote a lot, didn't he, before he came to, um, even before he started The Less Deceived. He did, and, and there's, you know, there's a lot of material that isn't in there. You know, I, yeah. I couldn't and didn't write about everything. There's, there's, mm. there's so much more in the archive. Um, yeah, he was he was really writing very, very intensively. It's very prolific. And was he um, writing diaries as well at that point as well, do we know? I think he was, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, so we know that we know that he was keeping a dream diary. Yes, he, yeah. At Oxford. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think he was, yeah, he was, you know, keeping a diary. And of course, as, as, as we were talking about, keeping up his correspondences. And so just, just writing all of the time. Writing really. and, and doing his university writing and reading as well. For his actual yeah, degree, yeah. for um, his degree, but then just re- then his own private diet of, of reading because he he was very sort of unsatisfied with with what Oxford gave him. I think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he was very industrious and still managing to get out to the pub quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah. <laughs> and still enjoy himself. Yeah, go out on bicycle rides and all the other kind of thing. And he was absolutely like prodigious, really, with the amount that he did and the amount that he produced. So um, are you uh, researching any different areas of Larkin now? Um, so I think what, what, I'm, what I'm becoming interested in now is, well, as, uh, I, guess, I guess it's almost like the next step on from, you know, leave, leaving the book at The Less Deceived, um, sort of becoming really interested in, in the movement and Larkin's relation to, relationship to that because... Mm. Um, there's not actually been an awful lot of work done on the movement, which is weird because mm. it, it comes up so so much in when people tell stories about post-war literature and how it sort of developed and that sort of thing. The movement yeah. is always so central to those narratives, but actually there isn't an awful lot of work on it. And um, I think with a lot more scholarship on Larkin that's been published over the last you know decade or so, um, I just, I, I think, I think it's sort of ripe for reassessing and reassessing Larkin's place in the movement, but mm. also the other writers, because there are there are some really fascinating writers within that within that label. So that's but, that's yeah. that's my interest now. That's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think some people kind of see the movement as as a bit of a spurious sort of label that it doesn't never really existed. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that would be really interesting to go back and have a, a re-evaluation of that. Um, we need to get Blake Morrison along. Yes, yeah, that would be, that would be 
it's really interesting because I, I think his his book is so good. His book on the movement is 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 just is is really really good. Um, yeah. But I, st- I still I still feel like there's more there's more to be done there. Yeah, and as each new generation um, comes through, there there always will be a new sort of reevaluation and and seeing new links and new connections. I mean, I think you know in, in twenty years' time we'll be ready for a new biography of Larkin. Mm. Um, I think when particularly when Monica's letters become um, available for general readership, um, I'm not sure how long that is. It's still a, a few years away, um, and I, I would really like to see a, a woman's voice. In, in a Larkin biography, because obviously we've had Andrew Motion and James Booth, and I think it would be really good to have a, a, a female kind of a re-evaluation of Larkin and, and yeah. bringing together all the new kind of strands of research, you know, like, like yourself and um, the, the, thing, the new things that we've learned about Larkin. Um, there will always be a time to to reevaluate to reevaluate James James Booth's biography to reevaluate Andrew Motions and and look afresh at him. Yeah, I think um, when the Bruce Montgomery archive, when the embargo is lifted on that, I've, I've got mm. twenty thirty five in my head. Mm. So still, it's still a long way away. But um, yeah. I think that'll be really interesting as well. And yeah, another opportunity to. To look at, at Larkin, particularly in this period, actually, yeah, early yeah, Larkin. yeah, yeah, there, there will be, and I, and I think Larkin scholarship and and hopefully the reading of Larkin. I think we've already seen he's such a universal writer um, and a global writer. I think you know I've been looking at I've, I've got Anthony Thwaites' collection of the Larkin's books now, and there's a lot of. Um, a lot more overseas translations than I realised were, you know, there's French, Italian, Japanese, um, there's a, I think, Dutch, Scandinavian languages. And um, I know he's quite, he's well-read in South America because we get South American tweets in Spanish <laughs> and Portuguese, uh, which I just assume are um, complimentary. Uh, and, and I do think he he will continue to be seen as uh you know, one of the, one of these sort of timeless writers that can be read by anyone. I think so. And um, if if I'm wrong, you know, if Larkin is not this poet who makes connections with other people and who sort of, you know, tries to inhabit other people's lives and worlds, then why is he so popular? And why is mm. he so popular in all sorts of times and places? Thank you so much to James, and I hope you'll agree a brilliant start to the Larkin year. And I really hope James will come back to talk more about early Larkin with us. So a hello to a few new Twitter followers, and we're nearly at 600 now, so I'm hoping by the end of 2022 we'll break that thousand mark. That would be amazing. So hello to at Bookworm North, at uh, Ginger Green Productions in Hull, Deirdre Thompson, Mike Culliat, Caroline Hett and Isabel Tracy. And thank you to everybody that follows and makes comments and gets involved. It's a lovely, positive community. As you know, this is going to be a crazy busy year for the society. So tiny and all that air is going to be a bit like the number nine bus and may not always be on time, but it'll always be along the way 
taking the utmost care and attention to the passengers at all times. This podcast was produced by Simon Galloway and the opening music is The Horns of the Morning by The Mechanicals Band. And as ever, if you have any comments or any suggestions, I love hearing from you. So please get in touch. Bye. The horns of the morning Are blowing, are shining The meadow is wet With the coldest of June 